Good morning, HBC. How we doing? All right, half of you are doing well. The other half of you, hopefully you'll catch up to the rest of us. Hey, listen, it is good to be together with you this morning. And we are excited uh, about what God is doing in Nightdale. As our family arrived on the ground in December, we have just been impressed by two things, I would say, as we've planted ourselves in Nightdale. One is how special of a community it is and how great the people are that are there. And the second one is, is what keeps us up at night, and it's just how great the need is there for more churches. Eight out of ten people in, in that community are not in a life-giving church on Sunday mornings. And that breaks our heart, not just because they're not in church, but that, what that indicates about their relationship with God or the lack thereof. And so we have been spending time building out a team because if we're going to reach those people, it's going to take a team of people. And so God has bringing, been bringing people. God has been bringing resources. And we're excited about that. And I just want to tell you before we jump into God's Word together that if you're interested in partnering with us to reach the places where we live, work, play, and learn, we would love to continue the conversation with you. I have a motto, I don't like to eat lunch alone, all right? Um, and, and if I just stopped after don't like to eat lunch, that maybe would be better at times, but I don't like to eat lunch alone. Well, we'd love to grab a meal, we'd love to grab coffee, whatever it is, and just tell you a little bit more about what God's doing and, and see how maybe you can be a part of that. So my information's up there on the screen. You can shoot me an email and, and we can jump into that. But if you haven't been with us for the last month or two, we are in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And in that series, we're answering the question, how can we find clarity in a confusing world? And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, you know, there's lots of things about our world that are confusing. But one of the ones in my mind is just this idea of it seems like there is a leadership void that exists in our culture and in our world. And I was thinking back to my own life, and when was the first time that I began to mistrust a leader? And for me, it would go back to fourth grade. So I'm in my fourth grade classroom, and we had this teacher by the name of Mrs. Cook. And she grew up in a different time period. She was towards the end of her career. This is the year 1991, if my math is correct. And she was towards the end of her career. And I remember her telling us stories about when she was growing up in school, how if they even missed a spelling word, they would have to go cut their own switch and be disciplined for it, for missing spelling words. And I had this problem as a kid, maybe you can relate. My wife and kids may say, I still have this problem, but I would talk and then my brain would catch up. Anyone else have that problem at times in your life? Yes, thank you for your honesty. And I had that problem. And so in, in the spirit of a public service announcement for my class, I let Mrs. Cook know that if she ever did that to us, the principal would fire her. And that was received about as well as you can imagine it would be received for a fourth grader. And so I remember a few days later sitting in class, and we had, I went to this, this old school building, and the intercom goes off. And I hear, Mrs. Cook, could you please send Josh to my office? And it was the principal calling me to have a further conversation. And, and the principal was known by most of the kids in our school as Mr. Howard, but I knew him as dad. And so I walked the walk of shame <laughs> through the hallway and entered into the principal's office. Hey, dad. And my dad had this policy, which today I'm thankful for, but I wasn't then. And the policy was the teacher is always right no matter what. So my dad asked me my version of the story. And I said, dad. I was just sharing with her the fact that you would fire her if she did that. 
Mrs. Cook's version of the story was, I was trying to run her out of the school. Guess which version my dad went with? That second one. That day I learned two things. One is that you still could be paddled in school. And that double jeopardy does not exist if your dad's the principal because I also got it at home that day. But in that, here's the sad thing, and I don't blame Mrs. Cook for this one bit, because even if I was innocent then, there were 50 more things that I was guilty of that year that I should have been punished for. But the sad thing that happened, and this is a me issue, is in that moment in time, for the rest of the year, trust was eroded between me and Mrs. Cook. And I had my worst year of elementary that year because I couldn't trust my teacher anymore. Again, a me issue, not a her issue. But because I didn't trust her, It impacted things in a big way. And as I think about that, that's how the erosion of trust works. Leadership matters. In fact, some people would say everything rises and falls with leadership. Like, it's a big deal. And we get that. We live in a country where mistrusting our leaders is actually in our bloodstream. No taxation without representation. Some of us, we go back to maybe it's Watergate. Or it's Whitewater Gate. We think about wars that we've entered and wars that we've exited. And how we trusted or we didn't trust either the entering of the war or the exiting of the war. We think about bosses that we've had, if we've had jobs long enough, who who we mistrust. We think about, uh, even unfortunately in the church world, there's, there's no denomination in America that is exempt from a mistrust towards some form of the leadership. And that's just the reality of the world that we live in, that leaders, we have a difficult time of trusting them. But here's what I know. I know this, that God's desire all along is that the mark of a leader would be something entirely different. God's hope, God's goal, God's God's want, and, and God's purpose is that leaders would be people who wouldn't abuse or flex their power for their own good, but they would leverage it for the good of others. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I'd love for you to turn there. You can, you can flip there. We've got it on the, on the screen for you as well. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to see what God's intention and what God's desire is in the life of a leader. It says this. In verse 1, it says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That phrase right there, let's just pause right there right now. We're going to go through to verse 8. But that phrase right there, one be found trustworthy. If you're taking notes, write that down. That phrase is the linchpin that holds this entire passage together. It is the bedrock for what this is built upon. And what that means most accurately is it it means that let a leader be found faithful. Can you say faithful this morning? Faithful. Faithful. Say it like you mean it. Faithful. There we go. And we are going to explore together what are the marks of a faithful leader. What are the marks of a leader who is consistent? One that you can trust even if you disagree with them. One that you believe has your best interest in mind even if you don't completely align with where they're coming from. And can I tell you what faithfulness, what we're going to see this morning, what faithfulness lived out looks like? It's one word. It's one word. It's the word humility. Humility is what faithfulness looks like when it is lived out. Psalm 31, 23 says this, The Lord preserves the faithful, 
but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And so God is contrasting pride and faithfulness. Where one is, the other one cannot be. And so the mark of a faithful leader is that they are humble. Now, a little bit about what's going on in 1 Corinthians to bring us up to speed. If you haven't been here, 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a modern leader in his time. Before God radically got a hold of his life, he was an ambitious leader. And he gave his life to leading well. But it was for a wrong cause. And there was a ceiling on his leadership in a big way. And one day he had this encounter with God, and God radically got a hold of his life. And all of a sudden, his cause changed, and so did his impact in a massive and major way. And so he's writing this book to a church in the city of Corinth. And he's writing it for the purpose of helping to inform their worldview, helping to shift their way of thinking from a kind of a secular worldview to a gospel-centered, gospel-driven worldview. And so as he's teaching about leadership here, this would have been so countercultural for them. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, humility was not an attribute and a characteristic that would be desired. Today, our world has caught up. If you, if you Google servant leadership, you will see many things that don't have the word Jesus in it. Like most people in the marketplace leadership see servant leadership as a valuable thing. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world, if a husband's wife had an affair, he actually felt more pain from the shame that he would experience from society looking down on him than he would from the actual abandonment of his wife. Why? Because of, of, of the pride. One of the leaders of that day, Julius Caesar, actually wrote an a autobiography, and it was basically titled, 35 Great Things That I Did. Think about that. Our leaders today would at least make someone else write it and call it a biography, right? And act surprised when someone writes it about them. But not then. They were so bold about that. And so Paul is wanting to just turn that idea upside down based on the life and ministry of Jesus. And so today, what we're going to see is what should be true. Yes, in church leaders, because that's who this is written to. But church, this isn't just a time for us to simply assess Pastor Aaron, our church leaders, our pastors, our deacons. Quite honestly, they're doing a noble job. They're doing a fantastic job. But if this is a passage about humility and leading in a position of humility, this is something for all of us with positions of leadership. Because leadership in its core can be defined with one word, and the word is influence. And if you're someone who has influence in the life of someone else, you are a leader. And this passage is for you. Not just bosses, not just employees, not just moms and dads, but their kids as well. This is for anyone with a position of influence. And if you say, I, I legitimately don't have influence, man, that, that, that's okay. This is what you should look for in the life of a leader that you're going to follow. Or perhaps if you're aspiring to one day have influence, this is what it should look like. And since this is a passage about humility, let me just encourage us. It's easy to cast stones at the leaders out there. But what if this morning God wants us to look at the leader in here? What if God wants us to honestly assess who we are and where we're at in the process of influencing and leading others? And so to do that, I'm going to give us three characteristics, three characteristics of a humble leader. But before I do that, I want us just to do a quick assessment. 
Here, here's my assessment. I, I, as I was thinking about this this week, I, I think there's four different ways, and there, there's more than this, but four specific ways that pride can kind of creep into our life as a leader. Four different types of proud leaders. So here's the first one. And, and I want you just, I'm going to try to step on all of our toes this morning. Okay, so if you feel like you're let off the hook in the first one, just wait. I'll try to step on your toe later. Okay, and, and, but, but honestly, let's, let's assess. Let, let's be open to this. And so first of all, you have the entitled leader. The entitled leader is someone that the key word in that is title. Okay, they are all about what they deserve as a leader. I have earned this because of my education, because of my position. I have earned this and I deserve to have you respect me. Have you ever met an entitled leader? Some of you are thinking about it. Don't point at them if they're in the room this morning, okay? You've met an entitled leader. Billy Graham tells a story of entitlement. He said there was this, this man that was walking across, walking through the woods one day, and he hears this mother, and she's yelling, help, help. And so he looks, and there's this raging river, and this boy is struggling for his life, and the mother is too weak to help him. And so this man runs, and he jumps in the water with no regard for human life. And he fights the current, he fights the temperature, and he rescues the boy from, from the grip of death. And the boy is there, and he does CPR, and he brings him back to life. And as the boy is coming to, he begins to start talking, and this man is like, ah, this is where he's going to thank me. And the boy looks up at the man, and he said, mister, I was wearing a hat. Where's my hat? <laughs> Entitlement, right? Like, that's, that's the reality. It's, it's a part of many of us. The entitled says, I deserve this, I deserve better. Can you say entitled this morning? Entitled. Second one is, is the closed-minded leader. This leader would say, it was good enough for my dad, it was good enough for my granddad, it's good enough for me. This leader is opposed to learning new things because the pain that comes from changing is greater than any pain that they want to experience. And so they remain closed-minded. You've got the spotlight leader. The spotlight leader shoves others out of the way and shoves themselves into the spotlight. They want to lead because of the praise that's going to be heaped on them, the accolades, the notoriety that comes from it. This was me when I was in high school playing soccer. I wanted to be a captain. Main reason why? They gave you this armband that you could wear on your sleeve in soccer. And I wanted everyone to look at me and see that guy's the captain. And I wanted to be able to tell other people what to do. That's the spotlight leader. They want the perks, the swag, the notoriety. And then you've got the hypocrite. The hypocrite, they address before they confess, right? They, 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 they are a mess because they refuse to assess, okay? Like that is who they are. They don't want to look internally. They only want to look outwardly. That's the hypocrites. And this morning, I wonder if any of those hit close to home. If not, ask your spouse on the way out or even better, ask your kids. They'll tell you. Or ask the person you came with. Someone will be able to tell you one of those things. But the reality is we all struggle with pride. And I want to just say this. If, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, the conversation that we're going to jump into in Scripture as we continue in 1 Corinthians, I would invite you just to listen in. Because the principles that we're going to look at will help you be a better leader. Now, they're not going to help you as much if you're rooted in doing it out of a love for God. But they will help you. Because they are timeless truths. And so I invite you to just lean in, kick the tires a little bit, and, and, and discover what God might have. And so Paul lays for us this beautiful foundation with three characteristics of an undeserving leader. Let's jump back in again. Verse 1, it says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. 
So the first thing we see about an undeserving leader is they are content to be a lowly servant. Paul uses the phrase here, servants of Christ, stewards of God. And that phrase, we're going to talk in a second about what it means to be a servant and a steward. But before we do that, I want us to focus just for a minute on this idea of of God and of Christ. You see, for Paul, this was a big deal. For Paul, this mattered because he grew up not as an eyewitness of the resurrection of resurrected Christ, but he would have known eyewitnesses of Christ. And he would have heard from them stories of how Jesus hung on the cross, how he was beaten, how he was bruised, and then his resurrection that motivated his followers to go and start what Acts refers to as the way. This movement that took the Greco-Roman world by storm. And Paul jumps into this, and so what he would have heard, it wouldn't have been something that was written down, church. It would have been something he would have heard directly from an eyewitness. And that motivated him to live in the way that he lived. And so Paul understood that the foundation for him in being a leader was looking back to the cross. It was one of humility. Paul understood that whatever Jesus did for him, Paul could never exceed that with his life and with his ministry. I love the way pastor and author Chip Ingram says, he says this, the cross is the greatest example of humility and devotion in the universe. Jesus put your needs ahead of his own. He considered you more valuable than himself. And I wonder, do we realize that? This morning, do we see ourselves as deserving or undeserving? Do we see ourselves as worthy of the love of Jesus or unworthy? Do we see it as something that we're, we're the justice that we're due or something that, man, it's just an act of grace? And how we answer that question sets the tone for how we live and how we lead. That word servant that's used there, let's go back to that. There are multiple uses of the word servant in the Bible. This word, it is the lowest form of a servant that is possible in that language. In fact, the word in the original, the, the New Testament, if you're not familiar, it was written in Greek. And the word in the original Greek language, it means under rower. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, in, in Bible times, there were, it, it was a shipping industry. And there were three tiers to ships. And in each tier, there were different rowers. And the lowest form of slavery was the rowers who were in the bottom of the boat. They were called the under rowers. And where they were at, it was poorly ventilated. It's where all the excrements would go. And they, many times, they didn't even have a name, these servants and these slaves. And they had one job. Their one job was to row and sink. Row, row, row. They were oftentimes tied up to each other. No identity other than they were simply a rower in the bottom of the boat. It's interesting that that's the word that Paul is using here. He's, he's referring to himself as an under rower, the lowest form of a servant. In other words, so committed to the will of his master with one focus. But he takes it a step farther. He actually tells us that one focus had one job. It was to be a steward of the mysteries of God. So I am a lowly servant that's a steward of the mysteries of God. And here's what that means. The mysteries of God, it's not our aliens actually angels in disguise. That's not the mystery. Okay, it's not where is Elvis buried and is he even dead? Okay, that's not the mystery. We learn from chapters one through three that the mysteries of God are that the gospel is for all. 
And so what Paul is saying here is that as a leader in the church, as a leader, he has one job. As a lowly servant, the church leader is a manager of the gospel. That's it. A steward. He is responsible. He has one job and one job only. That word steward, it's talking about a family representative. Wealthy people in those days, they would hire these stewards and they would put everything in their home under the concern and the care of the stewards. And they wouldn't even consider it because the steward was so faithful to care about it. And Paul is saying that's what his responsibility as a leader is. It's an under rower, a steward of the mysteries of God. And a humble leader is committed to being a lowly servant, sold out to the will and desire of his master. Why? Because he sees himself as undeserving. He sees leadership as something that he, is his responsibility. If you're in a position of influence and you want to stand out, become a lowly servant. If you're in a position of influence and you want to increase your influence, become a steward of the mysteries of God. If you want to live countercultural, it's not about taking a stance about all the things that you're against. There's a time and a place for taking a stand, but it's also taking a stand for what God is for, and that is for humility, and that is for love, and that is for people. You want to influence? Serve others. Be a lowly servant. I've got a picture up here for you with my kids, with my grandparents a few years back. And on Tuesday, my grandfather, who's 90 years old, he said goodbye to my grandmother on their 69th wedding anniversary. But as I look at my grandfather and as I think about leadership, he is the summation of that for me. For the last 10 years, as my grandma's mind has been completely taken from her, to the point she didn't even know who he was. He cared selflessly for her time and time again. And as her eyesight was taken and as her hearing was taken and as towards the end of her life, she couldn't even control her bowels and he's 90 years old and he's caring for her. And you'd say, Grandpa, can we give you some help? And he would actually be offended because he realized he was a lowly servant with the opportunity and responsibility to lead and love his wife by caring for her in that way. And it wasn't until the last month of her life that he even invited a nurse into their house to care regularly for my grandmother. And, I, and as I think about leadership, I think about my granddad and what he modeled for me. And each one of us, if we embody the mindset of a lowly servant, God is going to give us opportunities to live that out. Paul continues, verse 3. He says, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. The second thing is this. An undeserving leader does not live for the approval of others. Woo, that one's hard. Because in this room, it, there's, there's two groups of people. There's people pleasers. And there are those of us who probably should care a little bit more about people because of our lack of caring for people, we struggle with empathy, right? It's two ends of the spectrum. That's kind of where we find ourselves. And Paul is saying it is a small thing to be examined by you. In fact, the word that's used there is he's saying it is actually insignificant what you think about me. There's not a word that is more thorough to describe what people think about Paul. And he's saying, I don't care what you think about me. But he actually takes it a step further. He says, I don't even care what I think about me. Which, it's like, what? Like, we'll get to that in a minute. But he is saying, listen, 
You can stop judging me because I have stopped judging me. I don't care what you think about me. It is insignificant. In Galatians chapter 1, he says it this way. For I am now, I am, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? He's asking the question. If I were still, so apparently it used to be a struggle for him. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. In other words, this is, a, this is an either or, not a, not a both and. I can either please Christ or I can please men. I can't do both. It's a bold statement he makes. How does it hit you? You know, it, this is, a, I'm just being honest, this is a hard, hard thing. We are wired. We are designed in us to care about people. And so it, we have to push hard against this idea of caring what people think about us. We, we do. It's, it's just who we are. It, it's, it's in our nature. It doesn't make it right, but it's, the reality is it is a struggle for many of us. But here's what I know. That when we're a people pleaser, we're a leader without a purpose because our purpose has become pleasing others. In other words, we are going to wander aimlessly when our, our, our mission in life is to please others because that's what we're always going to be tethered to. That's what we're always going to be tied to. And we're, and we're going to miss out on a significant amount of impact, and it's going to rob us of the joy that God has created us to experience. You might say, man, I, I don't care about influence. I just want to live at peace and harmony with everyone. It's not a big deal. I'll just, I don't care what people think. I'm going to orient my life around that. But it is a big deal. Because people-pleasing ultimately is idolatry. It's, it's taking something and it's putting it ahead of God. It's taking something that God intended for us to function alongside of, and it's elevating it, and it's worshiping it. And Paul is saying that is dangerous. That is harmful. This one's a little personal for me. As I was putting this message together, I was thinking about how many illustrations I had of failure in my life. To be honest, I had, I had to like sort through so many examples that I could use as, as a proud leader. But as I think about a people pleaser, I think about a, a few years back, about five, six years ago, Christy and I got invited to, I, I got invited, but together we often, we'll, we'll do weddings together and we'll do the counseling together. And so I got invited to, to do a, a wedding for a couple. And one of the prerequisites I have is that you have to go through counseling. It, it's formative. It's, it's so important. It is a non-negotiable. And I believe it helps people like, in ways they, they can't even see and understand. I, I know many of you agree with this. But this couple, for, for whatever reason, they were just kind of, ah, we're just busy. They, they lived about an hour and a half away from us. And, ah, you know, we're just, we'll, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. Finally, it was a few weeks before the wedding, and I'm like, we're driving to, your, like, where you live, and we're going to do a day full of counseling. We show up and like we, we got a tour of their house and we spent time together and all these different things. And it ended up that our counseling got boiled down to about 30 minutes together. That's all the premarital counseling we did with them. And I remember thinking, man, I should have I had a, more of a backbone. But I don't want to hurt the relationship. What will they think about me? I don't, I don't want to damage it. I'm, we're just going to do this. And so we spent about 30 minutes together. I did the wedding and I kid you not, within, within two years, their marriage had fallen apart. And I'm not saying that I was the sole responsibility for that because God calls us to take ownership. But I can't help but think in my life, if I would have been more concerned about the health of their marriage than what they thought about me, 
If I would have been more concerned uh, about their relationship with each other than their relationship with me, how might I have acted differently? And today, the groom and I, we have, we have no relationship. He, he's gone out of my life. And his wife, his, his former wife, they, they have no relationship. And their kids are left to experience the wake of it. And I know that God has forgiven me, and I don't have guilt over it, but I have regret. And I think about how things could have been different if I wouldn't have fallen into the trap of being a people pleaser. And that's the reality. But fortunately for us, Paul doesn't just stop and, and, and say, stop being a people pleaser. He gives us a solution. In verse 4 and verse 5, here's the solution. He says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, he's saying, this isn't just a bury your head in the sand moment to tune all voices out. This isn't where you can just say, I've got my truth, you've got your truth, you just do you, I'll do me. That's, that's not what he's saying. That's detrimental. Don't, don't, go, don't believe that lie. He's saying, I'm going to live for an audience of one, and you're not that one. I'm going to live for someone else's approval, and it's not your approval. He says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, for who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. And to push through the trap of, of being a people pleaser is to keep our eyes on the one who we should be striving to please. And that's what Paul is saying. It's to keep our eyes focused on the one who one day we're going to give an account to how well we've led, how well we've lived, how faithful we have been. And he's saying that is what I live for. I live for an audience of one and I live for the fact that one day I'm going to reign with Christ for all of eternity and it's going to be based on how faithful I am right now in my life. And that is the very thing that I care about. And that is how I push past being a people pleaser. And that is how I make it a priority to live for the approval of God and not for man. And so we see that an undeserving leader is content being a lowly servant and they don't live for the approval of others. And then finally in verses six through eight, we see this. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos. If you remember the last couple of weeks, Apollos was a contemporary of Paul. And, and the church was kind of saying, Paul is greater, no, no, Apollos is greater, no, Peter is greater. And, and Paul is saying here, first of all, that he and Apollos have illustrated that two leaders can work together. But they've also demonstrated how they're equal and not one is superior to the other. And he tells them in this verse that the proof of obedience to previous teachings that they have received is the ability not to be, what's the word? An arrogant leader. He continues, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? We're gonna come back to that word in a minute. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you act like it came from your hard work or your achievements? And then he gets a little bit sarcastic with them. He says, you are already filled. You have already become rich. He's like, in other words, in your minds, you've already arrived. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. He's using sarcasm because there in their minds, we've arrived. And they've got this position of arrogance. And they're arrogant about their standing. They're arrogant about their position, their affiliation, their achievements. And he's saying, stop it. What you have, you have received, not achieved. 
What you have is a gift and not something that you have earned. I like to think about it like this. One of my favorite basketball players all the time is Shaq. If you don't know who Shaq is, Shaq is seven foot one. And when he reaches his hand straight up, it gets to nine foot five. And a basketball hoop is 10 foot. And Shaq, when he used to play, he was, he was super fun to watch. He could dominate. But when he would dunk a ball, he would run down the floor like this. Yeah, right? He'd strut running down the floor. Do the math. He had, a, he had to jump five inches to t- touch the rim and eight inches to dunk. Shaq should be able to dunk until the day he breathes his last breath on earth, right? And yet he's flexed. Like if, if Shaq wants to brag, he should try making a free throw and then bragging about that. But Shaq, he he realized, like, he is strutting his stuff about something that he had no control over. It was his God-given height. Like, that's the reality. And I think a lot of us, we walk around the church, and we're like, yeah, I dunked. And we're seven foot one. And God's like, come on. I gave you that. You received that. And you're becoming arrogant about that. And that's a picture of what's happening. We say, my hard work, my ingenuity. We even say sometimes, my good genes. But our success is directly related to God's goodness in our life. As I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about something that's painful but true. That I believe that the reason that so much of the world hates Christians is because we're arrogant. It's because of our pride. And you might say, I- I'm not proud. I know how, how wicked and sinful I am apart from God. I know that every good and perfect gift comes from, a go- from above. But I think sometimes, as we've seen in the last few years, we can hold to a, a position that honestly is secondary to the gospel. And we can hold to it so strongly that it comes across as pride. You might say, Josh, I- I'm-, I'm not proud about my political viewpoint I'm just strong in what I believe. But could your convictions be coming across as arrogance? Josh, I'm not proud about my view on how to parent. I just, I believe every parent should parent this way so they can have amazing kids. And it is a superior view and I want everyone to experience it. I just love people. And I want what's best for them. But could it be coming across as arrogance, as pride, as we post, as we look, as we, re- as we spend time interacting with others, how are they receiving it? And the reality is, if our viewpoint is superior, we should be humble enough to present it to others in a way that's loving, because we should be more focused on the disease that we're called to attack than the person that carries it. And we miss out on those opportunities time and time again. And I think even as a nation, we've missed out on a golden opportunity where we could have leveraged all the divisiveness, all the fear, all the hurt, all the pain. We could have leveraged it for influence and good. But our pride and our arrogance has stopped us from doing that. And it all comes back to this idea that we forget that we have received, not achieved. Because if we've received, then we are undeserving and we are not deserving. And we begin to see that we have so much to be humble about. You know, as a church, we are so fortunate enough to have a leader like Pastor Aaron who embodies this so well. 
And he's so humbly. And as, as, as I've watched in the last six months, I, I've just seen his heart and his willingness to just be open-handed with everything that he has received from God. And he just continues he, he, to be like a spring that things pass through him. And that is, we are so fortunate to see that and to receive that. And it's an example for us to follow. And here's what I want us to realize. God has so much he wants to do in you. And God has so much that he wants to do in me. But if we hold on to things like this, we are going to miss out on it. If we see ourselves as deserving of all the good that we've received, we're going to just hoard it and we're going to keep it for ourselves. But what can happen when we walk in humility? And I wonder, what is holding us back today? Perhaps you find it hard to see yourself as a lowly servant because your whole life someone has told you how great you are. And that's a real struggle. Perhaps you've gotten sucked and pulled into the vortex of people pleasing. And you can't push past it because your whole life you have been wired to fear what others think about you. Maybe it started with a parent years ago and then a teacher and you just got sucked into that and you just can't be freed from it. Or so you think. Maybe you, you're just so trapped on the hamster wheel of success that you're just about achieve, 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 and you miss out. And you might say, I'm just competitive, but God says, no, it's more than that. This is harmful and this is hurtful. And imagine living in a world where leaders truly are for you, where they don't just want something from you, but they want something for you. You can be that leader, and I can be that leader. And picture what it looks like when we become freed from thinking so much about what others think about us because we're so confident in who and what God has created us to be. Think about being on the receiving end of a leader who has your best interest in mind and who is constantly trying to outgive, outlove, outserve, out one another you. Man, who wouldn't want to follow a leader like that? And if you bear and carry the name of Jesus, that is our opportunity. And so as we call the band forward and the musicians, as we close, I, I want to finish with a story that I read this week, and I, I think it's so powerful. And it's a story actually back to that time of when slaves would be under rowers on a boat. And the story goes like this. The, the king of, of Spain was a noble man, and he had this prince that he loved and that he trusted. And so he told him, I want you to go to the galleys of a ship and I give you the freedom to pardon anyone that is there that you want. And most of the people on this particular ship, they were there for a life sentence. They were there for life because of a crime that they committed. And so this prince shows up at the ship and he's walking around and he walks over here to this individual and he says, sir, what are you here for? And the man says, a false witness made something up. I'm completely innocent. I should not be here. The prince says, ah, okay. He walks over here to the next person. He says, sir, what are you here for? He said, well, I did something kind of bad, but not real bad. Okay. He went to the next person and the next person, and he realized that every person that was there had a reason and had an excuse for why they shouldn't be there. They were all innocent, the entire boat. Some of you... You're like, man, as a parent, I get that, right? They were all innocent. But he came to one man. He said, sir, why are you here? 
And the man said, I deserve to be here. I'm getting what I'm due. I, I, I committed this crime, and I truly should be sentenced to death. The prince looked at him and he said, someone as sinful as you needs to leave this place because I don't want you to corrupt all of these unsinful people. And he said, today, I'm setting you free. You're free to go. I have come to set you free and you, your sins are held against you no more. And today, this morning, the prince has come to set you free. I have no doubt that there's someone in this room that has never been set free by the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And his purpose in coming was to set you free from your brokenness. But it starts with realizing that you, what you deserve is death and what you don't deserve is life. What you deserve is hell and what you don't deserve is heaven. And that's an invitation this morning to cease striving, to stop working towards figuring it out on your own. And with open hands saying, I need help. With open hands saying, I'm undeserving of the love that God is offering me. And in just a minute, I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive the freedom that the Prince of Peace offers. But I believe that most of us in this room, we are keenly aware of our sin. But perhaps this morning is a reminder of what it would look like for us to embrace the role of a lowly servant. To stop seeing ourselves as, as people who are achieving and remember that we've received. To stop being on just the wheel of people pleasing and to be set free from that so that God can expand our influence. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes so that we might have life and life to the fullest. And that life to the fullest comes when we walk in humility to what he's called us to do. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? And friend, if you're here this morning and you've never allowed the prince to set you free, if you've never admitted your guilt Today, he wants to set you free from self-righteousness. He wants to set you free from brokenness. And the reality is there is no sin that is too great for him to be able to set you free. Because he went down into that boat and he took your punishment for you. And today, if you want to be set free, I invite you to, in your seat to, to simply acknowledge in the quietness of your heart, God, I am a sinner. God, I need your forgiveness. God, today I repent. God, today I turn from my sin. Please welcome me into your family. Please help me from this day forward to live for you. If you've prayed that prayer and you believed it in your heart and you've meant it, God has saved you. God has rescued you from your sins. For all the rest of us, as we sing together, I want to just invite you to assess where you're at and what it is that God is calling you to confess in this moment. And then I invite you 
to respond. If you gave your life to Jesus today, respond, let us know. There's something we can pray for you about, let us know. God is inviting you to take a next step, let us know. But each one of us can think about what it looks like to confess our brokenness to God. God, we love you. And we thank you for what you're doing. In your name we pray, amen.